This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're going to look at a logical fallacy and a cognitive bias in this episode. The logical fallacy we're going to look at is called megatrifle. Megatrifle. M-E-G-A-T-R-I-F-L-E. It is, I suppose, a type of red herring. We haven't really looked at red herring, but a lot of fallacies fall under the category of red herring. A red herring is something that misleads or distracts from the relevant issue or argument. So if you're trying to for example, debate with somebody or converse with somebody and you're talking about something specific and then they throw out something to distract from that main issue, then they are possibly committing the red herring fallacy. They're trying to get you away, probably because their argument's in trouble, right? So a mega trifle, it actually means a couple different things, it looks like. And it's probably not a fallacy that somebody would commit in the course of, you know, making a specific argument about something. It seems to be more, it seems to be more about, seems to be more like a category mistake that somebody might make um, just in their day-to-day life. Okay, let me, let me read you a couple things and, and maybe you'll see what I mean. So there's kind of two senses here. Here's the first. Take, take a small inconsequential effect and magnify it to become all-encompassing in its supposed influence. And then the small example here it gives is, uh, these are people whose fear of the snake in the grass is so great that they're unable to see the bear that is about to eat them. So that's an example that has to do with maybe focusing on a, a much smaller, uh, a much more insignificant threat at the expense of a much larger threat. Okay. But it, it could also it could also mean something uh, about blowing up an anecdote. Okay, something specific happens to, to a single person. Maybe it's you, and now you're under the impression that this bad thing is probably something that affects most other people, and we or the government should probably do something about this. Because of what a what a big disaster it would be if we don't. It's really something small that may be absolutely terrible for you, for whoever it happens to. But when you do take a step back, what you realize is you're just you're just committing a mega trifle. You're just taking this this singular example and you're trying to apply it to everybody when it when it probably doesn't. So mega trifles can become they can be they can be the basis of. Something very dangerous, I guess, if, if, 
you know, some institution like government becomes involved in it. It can be it can be used to do a lot of things that end up quite possibly making life worse for a lot of people. Uh, ultimately, for for nothing, for something that's that's ultimately inconsequential. And we can all probably think of examples of that. Here, here's the second sense of mega trifle, and it's I guess it's it's similar. When somebody gets all upset over something that makes no practical difference, you're dealing with a person whose world exists only within their mind or the minds of their significant others rather than outside it. And it says, so don't bother asking what difference does that make. You'll generally find that verbal assurances are the only way to calm her down, calm them down. Now, when I read that version of Mega Trifle, it reminded me of something, and that is my children. Children have this way because their worlds are so small. And I'm talking about, um, well, really all children. They, they do it in different ways from, from infants to, to toddlers to, uh, you know, prepubescence to, to adolescents to teenagers to young adults. And, of course, adults do this too. But what I'm thinking of is, is kids, okay? And when something happens to a kid, to them, it can seem like, you know, an extremely terrible thing, right? Like, like they have a, a piece of paper and they're, they're coloring a picture, they're drawing on it, and they make a mistake. And then they get really upset because their paper or their picture is now, quote, ruined, right? And they get really upset. They get really emotional. They're crying. And maybe they're, you know, for, to us as adults, what just happened is incredibly insignificant. It means nothing to the, the, the larger scheme of things. It's just a picture, right? But to that four-year-old, it's something she's been working really hard on, and it's been the entire focus of her attention for a significant part of her life, right? If she's four years old, right, a few hours relative to how long she's lived is like a few days for us adults who've lived for 30, 40 years, right? So in her, her, her mind, in her little tiny world, this is a very big deal and it's upset her. Okay. Now we, as the adult, we, you know, it's our job to just uh, be there to comfort her. I don't believe it's our job to tell her to, you know, tell her it's, it's dumb to cry and to be emotional about that or anything like that. I think we should allow kids to feel their emotions out. I think that's how they get a better handle on them in the future. And I believe it's how they learn empathy for others. So when my kids get really upset about something, now kind of a, a red herring from that is if I'm somebody who maybe has PTSD from being raised maybe in a, in a loud or violent house, then having a kid screaming can be kind of triggering, right? That's how PTSD works. Something triggers your anxiety and your stress. And if I haven't dealt with that, then that can turn me into also committing a mega trifle <laughs> in the sense that now my kid being upset is being made into a bigger deal to me than it should be. So now I'm committing the mega trifle. They're committing the mega trifle, which to them is a super mega is a super mega problem. It's making them upset, which is now, which now they're crying and they're screaming is having a triggering effect on me and my PTSD. If, if you're somebody who suffers from this and, and it, it is a real thing, I, I assure you. And now it's, uh, it's a mega trifle for me. And mega trifles, in this sense, become dangerous if I turn and become violent or scary to my kid, 
right? Now, this mega trifle has become something dangerous. So that's another sense in, in which it can be, it can, can become uh, disastrous and dangerous. So to my kid, they make a mistake on their picture. They get really upset. Now, obviously, I'm the adult, and it's my job to stay, uh, to stay in that adult world, in a sense, and to understand that this is really not a big deal. To them, it's a very big deal, and I think we should respect that. We shouldn't shame them, and we shouldn't tell them it's not a big deal. To them, it is. We should just be there and hold them and give them loves and uh, ask them if they want our help to try to fix it or to start a new picture and let them have their tears, let them have their moment. I've done that with my kids, and my kids have gotten a really good handle for their ages over their emotions. I think I believe that they are developing quite well in that regard. I think their emotional intelligence is coming along quite nicely because I've, I've raised them that way. Anyway, so that's, that's, uh, that's what I mean by, by mega trifle is more of a, more of a lived or practical type of fallacy that we commit, not so much something we might commit like in a debate with somebody. I mean, it could be, but it is more of a practical type fallacy. Okay. So that's mega trifle. It's a, it's a type of red herring, I guess. And it's, it's when we make out something that really isn't a big deal. We make it out to be a, a really big deal. So let's let's look let's look out for that. I guess. Okay, let's go over to uh, the Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf Debelli. We're going to look at Chapter ninety three, the Zegarnik effect. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll pretend. So as I do, I'm just going to read through this and we'll add some commentary. So it starts Berlin, nineteen twenty seven. A group of university students and professors visit a restaurant. The waiter takes order upon order, including special requests, but does not but does not bother to write anything down. This is going to end badly, they think. But after a short wait, all diners receive exactly what they ordered. After dinner outside on the street, Russian psychologist student Bluma Zigarnik notices that she left her scarf behind in the restaurant. She goes back in, finds the waiter with the incredible memory, and asks him if he has seen it. He stares at her blankly. He has no idea who she is or where she sat. How can you have forgotten, she asks especially with your super memory. The waiter replies curtly, I keep every order in my head until it is served. Zigarnik and her mentor, Kurt Lewin, studied this strange behavior and found that all people function more or less like the waiter. We seldom forget uncompleted tasks. They persist in our consciousness and do not let up, tugging at us like little children until we give them our attention. On the other hand, once we've completed a task and checked it off our mental list, it is erased from memory. The researcher has lent her name to this. Scientists now speak of the Zigarnik effect. However, in her investigation, she uncovered a few untidy outliers. Some people kept a completely clear head even if they had dozens of projects on the go. Only in recent years could Roy Baumeister, Roy Baumeister and his research team at Florida State University shed light on this. He took students who were a few months away from their final examinations and split them into three groups. Group 1 had to focus on a party during the current semester. Group 2 had to concentrate on the exam. Group 3 had to focus on the exam and also create a detailed study plan. Then Baumeister asked students to complete words under time pressure. Some students saw PA dot 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 and filled in P-A-N-I-C, panic, while others thought of P-A-R-T-Y, party, or Paris, P-A-R-I-S. This was a clever method of finding out what was on each of their minds. As expected, Group 1 had relaxed about the upcoming exam while students in Group 2 could think of nothing else. Most astonishing was the result from Group 3. 
Although these students also had to focus on the upcoming exam, their minds were clear and free from anxiety. Further experiments confirm this. Outstanding tasks gnaw at us only until we have a clear idea of how we will deal with them. Zygarnik mistakenly believed that it was necessary to complete tasks to erase them from memory. But it's not. A good plan of action suffices. David Allen, the author of a best-selling book aptly entitled Getting Things Done, argues that he has one goal, to have a head as clear as water. For this, you don't need to have your whole life sorted into tidy, tidy compartments. But it does mean that you need a detailed plan for dealing with the messier areas. This plan must div- this plan must be divided into step-by-step tasks and preferably written down. Only when this is done can your mind rest. The adjective detailed is important. Organize my wife's birthday party or find a new job are worthless. Alan forces his clients to split such projects into 20 to 50 individual tasks. It's worth noting that Alan's recommendation seems to fly in the face of the planning fallacy. Chapter 91, which is something we'll get to. The more detailed our planning, the more we tend to overlook factors from the periphery that will derail our projects. But here's the rub. If you want peace of mind, go for Alan's approach. If you want the most accurate estimate on cost, benefit, and duration of a project, forget your detailed plan and look up similar projects. If you want both, do both. Fortunately, you can do this all, all this yourself with the aid of a decidedly low-tech device. Place a notepad by your bed. The next time you cannot get to sleep, jot down outstanding tasks and how you'll tackle them. This will silence the cacophony of inner voices. You'll want to find God, but you're out of cat food, so create a plan to deal with it, says Alan. His advice is sound, even if you've already found God or have no cat. <laughs> All right. I really like this one. It's um, it's really good, I think. I like um, – yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's – sorry. I'm just I'm just really trying to pick, pick, pick something from my life as an example. Um, which I can't really do. Anyway, um, just this idea that if something's on your mind, okay, it's 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 a distraction. Maybe it's distracting you from sleep. Maybe it's distracting you from having a moment with your kids. Whatever it is, right? Take take out a notepad or take out your phone. I do this all the time, actually. Okay, let me. So whenever um, I want to be reminded of something, okay, I'll pull out my phone. I'll open calendar. I'll create a reminder. I'll set a time. Boom, done. If you look at my calendar. My Google Calendar, every day is full of stuff. I've got recurring stuff like delivery times and set DoorDash schedule and uh, morning coffee, evening coffee. You know, I've got all these reminders and I've got all these appointments. And I've got personal calendar. I've got birthdays. I've got um, family stuff. So if it's a family activity, I'll throw it on there. And I've synced that to my kids' phones and my wife's phone. So they'll, they'll, they'll get pop-ups. Like over the last uh, five, six years that I've been self-employed, I've really had to keep myself on task. And this tool, Google Calendar, with both appointments and reminders and having it linked right here on my phone, which is always with me, has been invaluable. So whenever something is distracting me, I don't want to forget something, I'll immediately make a plan of action. And that action is either an appointment on the calendar or it's a reminder on the calendar. And these these work differently. Appointments will email me an hour before and notify me on the phone 30 minutes before. Reminders just pop up at the time I set, and I don't have, you know, I don't get an email or anything. So it's a little, a little, uh, it's kind of a minor way, and the other one's a bit major. I've also got daily recurring stuff that happens every day and weekly and monthly. Anyways, it's crazy. But so that's kind of just an example. But whenever something is sort of on my mind, I've got to do something, which, you know, my, 
my days have become mostly routine week to week. Okay. So like this month, it's October. We just, um, celebrated yesterday, our anniversary. So we did some stuff for that. So we talked about what we wanted to do. And I put it on my calendar at different times. We went for a walk around the neighborhood in the morning, just my wife and I, and you know, I worked a lunch shift. I don't think I've talked about it on this podcast, but I do food delivery. That's what I do. Um, and then I, then I, I had an appointment with a friend to record a conversation for my other podcast and then, um, had some, some time in the middle. My wife and I took a nap and then we had a couple's massage scheduled. And then after that, we went to dinner and that was it. It was an, it was a nice day. Um, I think for both of us, but when we talked about it, instead of, you know, letting it bother us, I just immediately stuck it on the calendar. So that's, that's been very useful. Um, this month, October, I've got two kids. So we had our wedding anniversary. I've got both of my wife's parents' birthdays. Her sister has a birthday. Two of my children have birthdays. And then two weeks in November, my third child has a birthday. So within a three-week period, all three of my children have their birthdays, which has actually been really nice. I highly recommend grouping your kids together like that because then you can get away with having one birthday party. <laughs> And if you have it somewhere like a trampoline park, the five-year-old's just as happy as the 14-year-old, <laughs> truly. So that's great. So anyway, when you're looking out at the month or the week or just a, a particular project you might be working on, if that project isn't, you know, life, then jot stuff down. I have found the calendar to be the most useful place. It's the most convenient. It's the most apt for, for that type of stuff. But if you if you are tackling some other kind of project, you're putting something together, then then jot it down, make a plan. And what's going to happen is all of this swirling around that's happening of all these different things inside your mind that's keeping you from the rest of your life is going to be exhaled, right? You're going to exhale it onto the paper and it really will have this Z-Garnic effect of clearing your mind. So just so just try it. The next time you have something, put it down. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it won't come back to you. Okay, I think you'll clear your mind, and then you'll probably want to, as time goes on, as as things get closer, as you begin working towards completing the project, revisit the list and make changes because you're going to have stuff come up, and again, those are going to stick in your mind until you you get it out, either by doing it or by writing it down. So this this really is something that works. I think I, I, yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. That's going to do it. Let's see. We looked at mega trifle and we kind of focused, um, I guess we kind of focused with that. We focused on my kids <laughs> in a sense, that's kind of a, a small example, but this, this can happen with, with a lot of people and it can happen accidentally. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not, it doesn't always mean that they're trying to that they're actually committing on purpose a red herring, like they're trying to distract from the bigger picture in order to to win the argument or to win the debate. It could be that for some reason, their mind is stuck on this really small part. And it can be a challenge to sort of get through that, get over it and move on to, to the bigger picture. So I get that. Okay. And then we looked at the uh, Zigarnik effect named after Bluma Zigarnik. So that's very interesting. All right, thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com.
please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.